Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. All right, Atul, welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership. It's going to be a great conversation today because I think the same way that I integrate strategy and finance, I think um, is the same way that you look at marketing. So I'm excited to... Um, you know, get into your thoughts on marketing, on data, and learn more about your book. So welcome to the show. Great to be here, Steve. Thanks for okay. having me. Let's talk about your background in marketing. Um, what made you passionate about this field? Like, did you know as a as a kid, you're like, okay, one day when I grow up, I want to, you know, I want to get into the field of marketing, or is this something that just kind of fell into your lap and you just kind of stumbled upon it? Actually, Steve, to be honest, it was the opposite of the first option. In other words, as a kid, I knew that I don't want to be a marketer. I don't want to be in sales. Uh, why? Because uh, I felt that these guys were charlatans. They had their hands in other people's pockets. They didn't really create any value for the world. They were just selling and talking. And I wanted to be an engineer, create something and you know, do that. Growing up, I actually was pretty sure that I was not going to be in sales and marketing. And uh, that was true all the way through my engineering school. That's why I joined an engineering school and wanted to become a car designer. And uh, then things happened. And lo and behold, um, I've been in marketing for the last uh, almost 40 years now. And then you wrote a book. So your book is called Lies, Damn Lies, and Marketing. Why the title? Why the book? Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, uh, like I said, I've been in marketing for almost 40 years. And I, uh, even though I, and I described that in the book, even though I was dragged into marketing, but I began to love marketing almost instantaneously. And that's why I chose to stay in marketing. So I might have had a, a sort of a, somebody had to pull me into marketing, but I stayed here very, very happily and willingly. But over the years, I discovered a few things about marketing. One, many practitioners of this field, I've noticed they were overselling what they were capable of doing or capable of delivering uh, in marketing. So what was the result? Whoever was their audience, typically the business owner or the CEO or the president of a company, they ended up being disappointed because things were oversold. And that bothered me. I thought it brought bad name to, uh, to the field of marketing. In fact, I was reminded of why I did not want to be a marketeer growing up. And I also realized and over the years that marketing actually creates significant value to a business. In fact, uh, in my book, I reference a survey that's done every year by an organization in New York City called CB Insights. So they analyze all the businesses that 
failed in the previous 12 months? And what are the root causes of that? Top 10 reasons that they're specifying, eight of those top 10 reasons actually belong in marketing. So in other words, if those businesses had done better marketing, very likely they would still be in business. So that message can be taken even to businesses that haven't failed, because that tells you that if you don't use marketing, you could be leaving money on the table. And then there's this other thing that marketing usually leaves the CEOs frustrated. So that's why the title, that's why the book, and I sort of make a distinction between lies, damn lies, and marketing. That yes, I know that there are lies and damn lies which have fooled you and which have caused the frustration and consternation as a CEO. But I really want to show you why that happens. And then I want to show you how you can avoid it and actually use real marketing in a more productive manner. So what are some of the main lies that marketers and marketing agencies, they tell? What are we talking about here? Oh, there's a whole bunch of things. Um, That's why the book has something like 18 or 19 chapters. Uh, Some of the top ones that come to mind is that, uh, you know, they talk about SEO and SEO tends to be expensive because, you know, everybody is trying to rank themselves high on Google. So they say, okay, let's go for long tail words. Uh, And even if they are able to explain that long tail words are words that are uh, not commonly used. So, you know, you choose instead of simple words, you choose long long tail phrases, they will indeed reduce your expense on SEO. So, okay, you know, that sounds like a good deal. looks like I'll rank high. It won't cost me as much. Let's go and spend the money on this long tail SEO uh, development. The only problem is that in the real world, most of your prospective customers are not using long tail phrases while searching. So you would spend money on getting your ranking high on phrases that actually your customers who you really want to reach, they're not using those phrases at all. So that's one of the lies that's, that's told by marketers that if you spend money on long tail phrases, your cost will go down, but you still rank high, except that you rank high in the wrong phrases. Yep. So that's one. Second example that I can give you, which actually was the primary reason I started on the idea of this book. And this is actually something that marketeers perpetuate and the CEOs lap it up and even CFOs lap it up. So it's, uh, I would say that there's equal blame on all sides. And that is that unless you can show me an ROI for a specific marketing program, we won't do that marketing program. Sure. Now, I'm a data nerd. I'm an engineer by my first education. So I'm very comfortable with data. I know how ROI works. But I also know that not everything can be put into an ROI. Yeah, so, so that's another uh, lie that's given by marketers that unless we have an ROI, we won't do it. Because sometimes if you choose that methodology, that unless there's an ROI, we won't do marketing, chances are that you'll not do some great marketing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's interesting because, yeah, I, I was talked to somebody who's trying to give me advice about um, SEO and they were talking about long tail key phrases. And um, so that's interesting to hear your perspective on that. So why do you think companies out there, I mean, are they, are they trying to be like malicious and, and try to tell these lies or do they just, you know, they, they misunderstand how search engines work or algorithms work, or just like the approaches to marketing are changing so quickly that it's difficult to keep up with. I mean, what's going on here, really? I would like to believe that there's no malice in there. And I truly believe that, um, that I don't think it's malice. Nobody's trying to hurt anybody. There are 
possibly two kinds of reasons why this happens. One is ignorance. In other words, some junior marketeers or some narrowly focused marketeers may not fully understand how, how things happen. So that's, that's just innocent ignorance. Okay. The other uh, cause could be that they feel that uh, they, by making a certain statement or making a certain claim, they have a better chance of either being on the good graces of the boss, if they are an employee of the company, or if they are an outside outsourced marketing firm, that they have a better chance of getting the project. So in other words, if I was an outside agency and I'm talking to the CEO, I'll improve my odds in most cases if I tell the C if I told the CEO that every single dollar that I spend, I'll show you the ROI. Okay? Well, is, I mean, is that because there's not accountability built in? Or I mean, or or are they just like, hey, I'll get the sale and if it doesn't work out, I don't care about the repeat business. I mean, what's your thought there? Yeah, I mean that that's the that's it. That if you're first of all, it's a much harder sale to a CEO to say that, you know what, there's certain things that I'm going to recommend that I will not be able to show you ROI on. Sure. I mean, that's, that's a, wait a minute. I'm not, I don't spend money. My CFO won't allow me to spend money unless I can show an ROI. Why would I spend money unless you can show me the return? Well, there are certain things that I won't be able to show you the return. And there are very few marketeers who will rise to the challenge and sort of go toe to toe with the CEO. Yeah. And I, mean, I, can, I can give you an example from my book. I mean, if you drive down from San Francisco to San Jose or the other way around, 50 mile distance, uh, you know, it's covered with about dozen, maybe even 18 odd huge billboards by Apple, which will typically show photographs shot on iPhone. You know, does Tim Cook ever get to know how many more iPhones have been sold because of the millions of dollars being spent on those billboards? No, there is no way to know how many more iPhones have been sold because of those billboards. But why is Apple spending that money? Because they know that Route 101 is getting busier and busier. People are spending more and more time on it. And it's a good thing to reach both prospects and existing users of iPhone with images of what can be done on an iPhone. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you wanna take your game to the next level or you wanna avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Sure. Absolutely. And that, that's a good point. And it, it's hard to sometimes take those intangibles and really quantify them. Um, let me ask you this about social media. So what do you think the reality is of marketing on social media? Great question. And this can go in so many different directions. So, so reel me in if I, if I digress. When social media first sort of um, took root, when it sort of came into our lives, I think it appeal to everyone. Why? Because it certainly felt like it's an easy, inexpensive way to reach an audience, uh, which is also clamoring for this new thing, whether it was Twitter, whether it was Facebook, whatever it was. I mean, it was the, the novelty value was there. The ease of reach was there. So it felt like a perfect medium for, for marketing. Unfortunately, uh, that viewpoint still persists even though the reality has changed. 
Now, why has the reality changed? The reality has changed is that everybody has jumped on that same bandwagon. So today there's so much noise that you cannot simply say, if I put it on Instagram or if I put it on Twitter, I'll get my audience. You won't. I mean, you yourself in your own personal life, how much data do you get? How much data do I get? And how we have developed our own filters to sort of ignore all that. That has been a problem with social media today. So today, social media is still a very good channel, but now you have to work hard to make it effective. You have to be smart about it. You have to be choosy about it. You still have to sort of lace it with creativity so that you can stand above the noise that the rest of the world is creating around social media, which is also, just one more point, Steve, this has also created I, what I would call um, a new or given a new life to the traditional media. Because since the whole world has gone towards uh, social media, if you come up with a radio ad, think about it, radio ad. I mean, radio was supposed to be long dead, you know, 60 years ago. People, uh, people notice. Why? Because people are spending more and more time commuting. So sure. you know, they're listening to the radio. Similarly, billboards. Billboards have become, uh, they haven't fallen off the roads. Uh, I gave you an example of the Apple iPhone uh, billboards. So traditional media has also got renewed life because it's no longer, it, it's got less, it's got less noise. A good marketing or a good company would get you to do a blend of social media or digital marketing and traditional marketing. Yeah. Cause there's some people out there and they claim, look, if you want to be successful on social media, you need to be posting like 10 to 20 to 30 times a day, right? Like crank it out, grind, like get out there and post. Like, it doesn't matter what you post, just post. And I'm thinking, is that really a good strategy? I mean, maybe that worked for them, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? The short answer is no, that's not a good strategy for almost all cases that I can think of. You cannot discount the value of what you are posting. Think about it. I mean, you know, we are still humans, right? You're still trying to reach a human being how humans process information is still the same. Our brain receives it. We sort of filter out things. We like certain things. We don't like certain things. And that's how we make decisions. Mm -hmm. How we consume or how we get that information has changed from radio to television, to color television, to billboards, to social media. But what we do with that information and how we process it hasn't changed. Humans haven't evolved in the last 50 years as much. So no, uh, you should not be doing, you should not be sacrificing quality for quantity of posts. Gotcha. So why, despite all these lies and the frustration associated with marketing, do business owners still need marketing or do they need marketing? Oh, they absolutely need marketing. Like I said, uh, the analysis that this company does shows that businesses fail, literally fail if you don't do good marketing. Now I'm, I must qualify most CEOs also think of marketing only as, okay, that's the website or that's social media or that's my posts or that's my blogs. Marketing is a whole lot more than that. It's about knowing where your customers are. First of all, knowing who your customers are, what segments to go after, what segments not to go after. I also talk about in my book, the marketing is also knowing what not to do. So it's mm -hmm. not the question of, whether I can come up with five items that we should do or 10 items that we can do. I should also be deciding, okay, these are the 10 things I can think of and I'm going to do only these three and reject the other seven for good reasons. Sure. Absolutely. So what do you think the difference is between big M and small M marketing? What's that all about? 
Great question. Thank you for asking that. So most of the visible marketing that either we as consumers see or companies tend to do and spend money on, they fall in the small M category. So in other words, those are the things that we all do and see in marketing. Websites, logos, advertisements, brochures, podcasts, collaterals, trade shows, almost anything that you can think of that's visible to a consumer would fall in the small M category. And therefore, you know, that's, that's what most people think of as marketing. What we call big marketing or big M marketing is stuff that happens behind the scenes or stuff that happens before you do small M marketing. I mean, there's a, there's a well-known saying that people attribute to different people um, and that says that I know that half of my marketing dollars are wasted. The only problem is I don't know which half. So I, therefore, I keep spending what I, what I do. The reason that's true is that people jump to do small M marketing. People jump to execute. People jump to get those posts out. People jump to get the new ad out. People jump to get the new booth design done without spending the time and money on the bigger marketing, which is more strategic, which is about who should we go after? Where do our customers live? What are, their, uh, what are their pain points? How do they make decisions? Getting that sorted out, which is part of the bigger marketing, is very important and should be done before you spend any money on smaller marketing. So my perspective is, yes, adding big M to your budget will add to your cost. But guess what? It's not that much. I mean, you typically in a good organization that's doing both big M and small M, big M marketing spend is less than 10% of your overall spend. But that 10% will make the other 90% that you are spending a whole lot more effective. So you lose less than half of those dollars. Uh, you know, when people say that more than half the dollars are wasted, in this case, you'll be getting bigger bank for your, your small and marketing dollars. Sure. And I, I think that ties into that old, old phrase, ready, fire, aim approach, where most people are like, okay, I need to go execute. I need to get that website. I need to get the logo. Okay. Let me start posting on social media. And then to your point, stepping back and being strategic can be really powerful, but most people don't do it because either they, they don't have the right approach or it just, it takes, you know, a certain level of strategic thinking or time to really be intentional. And I agree. I mean, you can really spin your wheels. And I think this is, you know, where I started off the episode saying there's this integration, just like I integrate strategy and finance, there's this integration between like strategy and marketing. And then we're also talking here, you know, you've been talking throughout the episode of like the economic returns, the ROI, there's this integration between marketing and finance. So I, I think it's interesting that you bring up that idea with big M marketing and the idea of starting with strategy and really understanding, okay, what's, what's my market focus and position? Who's my customer? What's their pain point? What am I really trying to solve? What's my value prop and all that stuff? I mean, in your opinion, why do you think companies don't do that? Or do they not see the value in it? Or they just don't have the time? Or I mean, what's going on here? I think it's, again, I'm not a trained psychologist, but I do study psychology as a marketeer. So my perspective is that probably the biggest reason is that we as humans, most of us, and most of the business leaders tend to be type A personalities, including me. So we, when we think of something, we want to go, 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 as opposed to take pause and sort of say, uh, am I doing the right thing? Is it the right, uh, right way to go? So I think it's just, we have to sort of almost work against our natural tendencies of, uh, of firing the moment we hold a gun. 
Yeah. And that could be difficult. I mean, to your point, I mean, because if you were to tell me, Hey, Steve, don't work for two weeks, that'd yeah, be really hard. It. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's, I mean, most people are like, yeah, I could go two weeks without working. But for me, like my personality is like, tell me not to work. And it's more of a challenge than getting me to work. So <laughs> I, I can see that for sure. Okay. So let's talk about what's the difference between marketing and sales in your opinion. And do you think these two departments, these two functions should work together or do you think they should be um, segmented? For sure, no doubt whatsoever, they should work together. There's no question about it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's if there's any certainty coming out, out of my book, it's that. But having said that, that doesn't mean that the two should be merged or the two functions should be merged. In fact, they yeah. should not be merged because they have a slightly different viewpoint. And both are very important, but they have to be separate enough so that they can focus on their own uh, sort of uh, domains, if you will. So if somebody said, well, what's, what's the main difference? Is one like more proactive and one's more reactive? Or is it, tell me your yeah, thoughts so that, on that your definition. Yeah, so I, there are lots of definitions and a lot of analogies there. I'm going to use two of them just to, just to get the point across. One way to make a distinction is that sales is or should be focused on what's in your inventory. Now, even if you're talking about things that are not manufactured goods, but what you have in your sort of portfolio of things that you sell. So even if you're a financial services company, you still have things that you offer. So sales is interested or should be interested in getting rid of that inventory or selling what, what's in inventory. Marketing, on the other hand, should also be concerned, uh, concerned with what should be in the inventory. Where is the market going? What should we, what will be needed? Where will the customers be? Where, what the customers will be looking for two years from now, five years from now? What's the new trend? So, so that's the one distinction between sales and marketing. Sales is focused on what's in the inventory. Marketing is focused on what should be in the inventory. Gotcha. The, the other analogy that I use to make this distinction is I use the analogy from cars. Because, you know, my love, first love was cars, right? I wanted to be a car designer. So every car, every good car has uh, headlights and headlights have a low beam and a high beam. Low beam and both beams are important. Low beam tells you, shows you what's right in front of you for the first 30, 40 feet of, the, of, of your, what's ahead of you uh, in the car. The high beam tells you, gives you the view maybe 300 yards further out. So think of sales as your low beam because it's telling you exactly where the portals are. Whereas the high beam is telling you where the deer might be crossing. So again, that's marketing. The high beam is marketing. Low beam is sales. And a good car should have both. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's a great way to illustrate that. Let me go back to something that you said just a minute ago about ROI, because it just got me thinking here. Um, you know, I was a CFO once and of a large company and, you know, we had a marketing department and you know, the marketing department, they almost had to like defend their position constantly to that very point, right? It's like, well, we are valuable. And it's like the CEO would say, well, you know, show me the data. Like what's our return on investment? Like we're doing these blogs, we're writing these articles, we're, we're doing all these things to promote the business and it's costing a lot of money. Where's the return and, and like quantify it. So it's like constantly like quantify and it's like, okay, well, let's try to quantify by the number of followers or the number of likes or like these other vanity metrics. Um, 
what would you say to CFOs? Cause some CFOs are probably listening and they're probably like, yep. Uh-huh. I know what you're talking about. I'm considering cutting our marketing budget or reallocating resources from one function to the other. Like, what would you say? Would you say, Hey, look, some things you can't quantify and you just need to like throw a certain amount of money and energy at marketing or like how can CFOs who like want to quantify, who want results, who want to measure, um, how can you like calm them down or do they need to be calmed down? Great question again. So CFOs are really rational people. Well, and what you. I mean by is that, there, is there any, any other compliments like are CFOs like good looking and bald? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. We'll get okay. to that. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me stay the rationality. Yeah. Okay. Let me stay the rationality. yeah. <laughs> so the reason I'm saying they are rational people, and I did not say that they are data-driven people, is that I include rationality beyond data. In other words, I can probably give you reasons why A follows B follows C without using numbers, if I use logic, right? Sure. So, so good marketing should understand that, that CFO might be asking for the ROI, because they're used to the ROI, they get engineering ROIs, but that's sure. their code. That's their code for give me a reason why you believe spending hundred dollars here will make sense. Yeah. Okay. So if I can give you a reason, like I'm assuming marketeers at Apple give to Tim Cook, is that more and more people are spending time on Route 101. Traffic is getting slower and slower. We are reaching not only our prospective customers, but we are also reaching our existing customers, users of iPhone, and it's a positive message for both segments. I haven't used any numbers. If you want numbers, I can show you how, how much more time is being spent on, uh, on Route 101. I can probably show you how many more cars are being uh, driven on that. So those metrics are available and there are sure. good metrics to have. But I won't be able to tell you how many more iPhones I'll sell if we do three more billboards. So what I'm playing on is that treat CFO as a rational being and put a story together that stands to reason, even if for good reasons, you may not have ROI associated with it. So that'll be my approach to, uh, to a typical CFO, good looking or not. <laughs> okay. I like that. So let's talk about creativity. So creativity makes marketing fun, right? Enjoyable, um, but it's not always a guarantee for increased revenue. So how much effort should businesses and their marketers be putting into like the creative aspect of marketing? You know, when they're looking at a photo and they say, ah, should we use this photo with the mountains in the background or should we use the one with the lake? Should we use green or do you think we should use silver? You know, and I mean, and you can spend so much time on the creative aspect. Does that stuff really matter? And what are your thoughts on resources deployed on the creativity side of marketing? Yeah. So like anything, you can overdo stuff, right? You can, you can sort of go endlessly on asking those questions and answering those questions. But having worked with both B2B and B2C companies, what I've noticed is that most B2B companies spend far too little on creativity than too much on creativity. In other no. words, they are shortchanging themselves by simply saying something like, well, we sell to engineers, we sell to data nerds, we sell to CFOs, as if those are not human beings, as if they don't have emotions, as if they don't appreciate art, as if they don't work with the same principles. I mean, think about it this way, color green or color red. You are, you've been a CFO. 
do those colors mean different things to you than to somebody who uh, who was a, who was a history major sure Probably. absolutely you know i mean it's red and green have some standard things and you you perceive data in a certain way so if i was telling you some good news and i captured it in red you that's going to cause some dissonance right if i sure. put it in green you treat it as as a positive and you are a data nerd mm-hmm. but you are exactly. still using color to influence you right sure. uh, so we all appreciate uh, we, and even though and I'm, I'm a data nerd, right? So if somebody dumps a spreadsheet, like almost like a CSV file, right? Without even headlines on it, like just downloaded CSV file, you know, 37 columns and 2000 rows. Part of me, the data nerd in me gets excited. Oh yeah, now I can chew on all this stuff. But I, my immediate reaction is, how, how, do, how am I going to interpret this, right? So if somebody puts nice labels on it and puts color coding and highlights three of those 37 columns that are really relevant, I get a positive response. So even a data nerd needs to be sort of convinced or needs to be sort of uh, appealed to on the emotional side, on on the creative side. So my recommendation to B2B companies is that don't uh, underspend on creativity. Don't underestimate the use of creativity creativity or the value of creativity in making and getting your point across. Okay. So Atul, let me ask you this. Back in the day, it used to not be cool to be a nerd, right? Remember that? Like <laughs> you didn't want to be a nerd, right? The nerd was like, got picked on and he didn't get, or she didn't get the the cute girl or, or boy. So, you know, but now is it cool to be a data nerd? Is that something we should aspire to? Should I be proud of that? That's a, you know, you asked me a question, which is a trap because I know <laughs> I'll, I'll disappoint one half. I don't know which half, but I will disappoint one half. But let me try to weave my way out of this. Okay. So the way, and this is the truth. This is what I tell my students when I'm teaching them marketing analytics. So I tell them the, the real value of marketing analytics or any analytics happens when you can merge it with the creative side. Sure. So, so in other words, I'm not in a, if, what, if, if there's anything I've learned over the years, it's not that A is superior to B or B is superior to A. Magic really happens when you work with both. Mm-hmm. You need the data, but you also need your intuition. You also need creativity to put it all together. Exactly. And, and I mean, that's what I talk to um, finance professionals about all the time is like, you could have all the data in the world. But if you can't, if you can't look at a financial statement or look at a, a data set and understand the story, exactly, and then, and then empathize, right? Empathize with exactly. the people, you know, the end users or whoever is going to benefit from that data, and you can't go act upon it. Like, then what the heck, right? So it's like, sure, you could talk about standard deviations and all this other nerdy statistical stuff, but. Um, if you can't take that data and say, I'm going to go act, right? So like, I'm going to look at a financial statement. Oh, our gross margins down here are the three levers I could pull to make improvements to our gross margin. If you can't go do that or same thing with marketing, if you're looking at data and you say, wow, this isn't working here, are two, three, four, five things we could go do immediately, um, to change the story. Then, exactly. I mean, it's just yeah. a bunch of data, right? You're just like yeah. compliance and transactional driven. Yeah, exactly. You said it very well. I agree. So what does cracking the Google code mean for marketers? <laughs> is there such a thing? Can, I mean, can you really crack the, the Google code or what is that? Well, in my view, you cannot crack the Google code, but it is such a real thing because many SEO companies will tell you that we have figured this out or we are closer to figuring it out. 
or they'll tell you that Google has changed their algorithm and therefore you should hire us so that we can fine tune your website to the new algorithm that we believe to be in play at Google. Mm -hmm. So that's the usual, that's again, one of the lies. So, I mean, the lie is not that Google doesn't change algorithms because they do. The lie is that A, they have figured it out. And the second lie is that it's even relevant to know what the Google algorithm is. So here's, here's a simple thing. If you go to the Google website there, I mean, not, not the search engine site, but sort of the behind the scenes Google Analytics site, they have a page where they list four things, four recommendations to the business world as to what you should do if you want to be treated well by Google search. In other words, think about it. Google is telling you what you need to do to rank high on the search engine. Uh, they haven't changed those recommendations. I mean, they may have wordsmith a little bit here and there over the years, but those recommendations are the same today as they were 10 years ago. Okay. And the essence of that, of, of those recommendations is the following, that if you, Mr. Company, the company, B2B company or B2C company, if you do your website well, targeting your customers well, we are smart enough, we Google are smart enough to see that and we'll reward you for it. So what they're telling you is that don't, don't treat Google as somebody that you need to please. Treat your customers as the audience that you need to please. If you treat your audience well, guess what? We'll be happy and we'll give you points for that. So when I tell uh, my clients, don't focus on Google, focus on your customers, uh, I truly mean it. And that usually gets rewarded by Google also. So it's a, it's a win-win. No, that's smart because then you get you know higher page views. You you don't get a high bounce rate. I mean, all the other things, and then the algorithm will pick up on that. Is basically yeah. what you're saying. So so the, so the benefit from Google is the fringe benefit because what you're really doing is serving your your primary audience, your customers, which is really key. No, that's smart. I like that. I like that a lot. Let me ask you about websites. So are websites are they that important? Like obviously you should have a website, right? But some companies. They just spend a ton of money, ton of resources on building out these extravagant websites. And then you, I almost see a trend towards companies like simplifying their websites. So it's like some of the companies that used to have hundreds of pages, right? And you just get lost in the website, like Stratosphere. Some of them are just simplifying it. And you go to their website and their navigation is simple. It's like about us, our philosophy, our services done. You know, And it's like maybe 10 pages versus like a hundred. Is that a good strategy? Is it better to simplify and not have all this garbage built onto the website? Are websites like overplayed, oversold? What, what's your thought on like website strategy and like resources spent on websites and just overall websites? So I think there are a few questions in there. Let me unpack those. So simplicity. Simplicity is always rewarded. Now, how simple that can vary from business to business. So, you know, simple for business A, maybe very, very complex for uh, simple for, for business B. But it should be as simple as possible. The standards may be different. In terms of importance of website, uh, what I tell people is that in B2B world, especially, and especially when you get to more sophisticated items or more expensive items, nobody's ever going to send you a purchase order by simply or only visiting your website. That, that, that's probably true. I mean, you know, you sure. don't ever make a sale directly on the website if you're selling 
jet engines or selling, um, you know, phones or mouses or whatever, you know. However, I don't know of too many instances, too many buyers, too many customers who will not check you out on the website as part of their due diligence before they make the decision. Sure. So in other words, you cannot say that, hey, our, we are dealing directly with, we have a great sales force. These are data people. We need to spend a lot of time with them. Therefore, we don't need to spend money on website. Guess what? Between the, your meetings with those customers, they are checking you out on the website. So every business should have a good website, simple website, informative website, appealing website. It may not be the end all. It may not be where all of your sales happen. It may, in fact, be very little is sold uh, on the website. But it is still very important because that's one easy way in today's world for somebody to check you out, to get to know you a little better and to sure. either feel better about you or feel good about you or not feel good about you. Yeah, I like that. Make it as simple as possible, but no simpler, right? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> All right. So Atul, uh, last question for you. What, what's the number one thing you want your readers to take away from your book? If you say, I, I really want you to get this, this is something I'm really passionate about. Like, here's my one piece of advice to you. Like, what is that? Deliver it home. Um, let me, let me cheat a little bit and give you not one, but one and a half. Okay. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so what I would want my audience to get is that regardless of the frustrations that they may have experienced over the years from marketing, marketing is still crucial to their success. And my book will tell you why the frustration happened and how it can be avoided. Simple as that. Well, I like it. Well, it's been a great conversation. And, um, you know, I, I think marketing is so important because, you know, as one of the, the value drivers, obviously that CFOs use, you know, you have price premiums and that price premiums can be derived from having a strong brand, a strong customer experience, you know, and it's all communicated through marketing. And I think, you know, that's very powerful. And then, you know, you have costs and capital efficiencies. We talked about how you can spend a lot of money, um, on small marketing, without the the big marketing, the big M, right? And uh, you can waste a lot of money by not being strategic first. Uh, so there, there's some upside there. And then growth, you know, growth's another value driver of CFOs. And I think marketing could really drive growth if you understand, you know, your, your product market fit and, you know, your market position and your customers and the problems you're solving. So I, I think you, you tied it nicely together today, a tool um, in your book at, you know, congratulations on the launch of that. And everybody, please be sure to check that out. Uh, great resource for you as you're continuing to grow your business and drive value. And good job of what you're doing out there in the world, impacting people's lives through better business. And, and I like that. I like that a lot. So thank you for thanks, the opportunity. And thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.